Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Meredith Broderick. Dr. Meredith is board certified in neurology, sleep medicine, and behavioral sleep medicine. She's one of the only physicians in the country to hold this combination of board certifications. Dr. Meredith practices the full scope of sleep medicine, treating conditions such as insomnia, narcolepsy, parasomnias, circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders, restless leg syndrome, and sleep-disordered breathing, including all forms of sleep apnea. She has a special interest in treating insomnia without medications, utilizing a state-of-the-art treatment, also known as cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. In the episode, Dr. Meredith shares how to take a personalized, nuanced approach to sleep, whether or not it's okay to sleep less than eight hours each night, why she's not a fan of the term sleep hygiene, and more. Before we get to the interview, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you that's helped me sustain my nutrition and health goals. It's called Thrive Market. Thrive Market is an online grocery platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Ordering healthy groceries on Thrive is so easy, but what I love most is the money I save. Since Thrive cuts out all middle people and ships everything directly to your door, you can save anywhere from a few cents to several dollars on every single item you purchase. That's how I was able to save over $1,000 on healthy groceries just last year. I could honestly go on and on about Thrive Market, and if you listen to this podcast regularly and follow me on social media, you know I talk about Thrive all the time, but honestly, it's because it's been such a game changer in my life. I know you're eager to get right to the episode, so I will send you to my full Thrive Market review where you can steal my shopping list of over 150 items and save additional money on your first order. To get all of that great stuff, just visit thehealthinvestment.com slash thrivemarket, or just click through the link in the show notes. And while you're listening to this super informative episode about sleep, do me a favor. While you're listening, take a selfie, post it to social media, Tag me at The Health Investment and let me know your key takeaways. I absolutely love seeing you in action and learning your favorite parts of each episode. All right, let's get right to it and let's hear from Dr. Meredith. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson certified nutrition coach and your host of the health investment podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week I interview experts and share no nonsense research backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Dr. Meredith. 
thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. I've been wanting to have you on for quite some time after I found you on Instagram and was able to kind of see everything you stand for when it comes to sleep. So cannot wait to pick your brain and just learn as much as possible about how to sleep better. Well, thank you for having me. If you wouldn't mind, would you just in your own words, describe your story and then specifically what led you to become a triple board certified sleep doctor? Sure. So I grew up in a family in small town in Northeastern Ohio, and my mother was a professor at the medical school there. So I grew up going in to work with her and seeing things like human brains and cadavers at a very young age. And it really made me want to be a physician from a very young age. So I went on to go to medical school and uh, I trained in neurology. And when I was doing my neurology training, I discovered that sleep medicine was a subspecialty of neurology. Um, I had a lot of personal reasons why I thought sleep was very interesting. My brother was a sleepwalker when I was growing up, a very dramatic, uh, had injured himself pretty badly a couple times. And I also just saw sleep as a field that was going to grow a lot and had a lot of unknowns. So I ended up going on to Stanford for a fellowship in sleep medicine and was able to also do some behavioral sleep medicine training and sit for that board after that training. So that's how I ended up with all that training and where I am now. Wow. I feel like you were really ahead of the curve when it comes to knowing that sleep was going to be such a big thing because I could be wrong, but I feel like it's only become this huge, important focus that we're all thinking about in the past several years. So how did you kind of years ago figure out that this was going to be, this was going to kind of blow up? I think that I just noticed for me how important it was. I noticed what a difference it made in my life uh, when I didn't sleep well in terms of my academic performance. And it really wasn't something that I, you know, sort of approached for a business reason at all, or even an opportunity, but it's just something that I intuitively felt drawn to and felt interested in. And, you know, as I said, my brother was a sleepwalker and um, there were a couple instances where he really got hurt sleepwalking and when he went to the doctor there wasn't really a lot of explanation like no one knew what to do about it or why did he do it and so to me I just thought there's a lot of unknowns here so I think it was kind of organic but yeah it has really become and I think it will even continue to become more of a hot topic in the future right I'd love to know just with all of your experience how do you define sleep So sleep is a state of being unconscious. So we're not aware per se, but it is different than being in a coma, for example, because it is immediately reversible. Mm. So in other words, if someone's in a coma, you can't awaken them or if they're under general anesthesia, you can't awaken them. And so just from a behavioral standpoint of like just observing a person, that would be the difference is that, you know, you can wake them up. Got it. And then the biological clock or circadian rhythm, are those the same thing? Generally speaking, I would say, I think, yes, the concept is the same in that uh, all of our cells have circadian rhythms and their quality of living things uh, that have basically a a timekeeper built into the cellular physiology. 
Interesting. Okay. So then how, why is that so important? I see things all the time of be sure you are optimizing your circadian rhythm and doing these different things, whether they're good recommendations or not, I don't know. But why is that so, so important? So I like to think of the circadian rhythm like this. You have, we all have this little, you know, little tiny part of our brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And it is, let's call it the conductor of the orchestra. And then if we think of all the other things in the body, like uh, cortisol secretion, you know, uh, temperature regulation, our sleep-wake cycle, those are all the different instruments. And the conductor, this timekeeper, is what gets all the instruments to play together. And when they play together in sync the way they're quote-unquote supposed to, then you get this beautiful sound and you get this optimal function and optimal health. And that's really why sleeping in sync with your circadian rhythm is very important because all of those things then align the way they're meant to, the way, you know, we were evolved and designed to sleep and wake and it really optimizes our health. Wow. So then how would you optimize your circadian rhythm? I think that's probably such a ginormous question, but just kind of going from, are there certain times you should be going to bed and waking up for everyone? Or does it different for each of us or nutrition? Like any way you want to tackle that, what can we do to optimize our circadian rhythm? Yeah. So the first, there are two main questions. Okay. One, the first question is what intrinsically is my circadian rhythm? And there's a lot of variability in that. You know, some people are intrinsically very much morning people, meaning they're, we call them larks. And that means that, you know, they're most alert, they're early risers. And then you have the other end of the spectrum. You have the night owls. You have people who are most alert and most productive in the evening. A lot of people know that just by, you know, asking questions about when they're most productive and things like that. Um, Sometimes it runs in families because it is a genetic trait, but there are also validated questionnaires that you can take online. Um, that will tell you this information. So there, if you want a link to one, um, I can give you that link. But there's a questionnaire called the morningness, evening, eveningness questionnaire that can give you guidance on that. There's also genetic testing for it, but we never really do that in the clinical setting because you can usually tell just through, you know, these surveys. And then the other question is, what are my obligations? So what what do I have to do? What, what is the point of my life? What am I living my life for? Whether it's my children, my family, my work, and let's try to align those things as close as possible. And then let's build a sleep schedule around that. Mm. So that's, that's where I start with people trying to solve that puzzle. Right. I find for myself, I've never, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily more productive at night, but I do tend to stay up later. And I've always just loved sleeping in a bit. And I was a teacher for 12 years and that just did not bode well because I was trying to force myself to sleep earlier, which usually I wouldn't be able to fall asleep. And then I was getting up super early. And then now that I have my own business, I can sleep more aligned, I guess, to what feels good to me. And I feel like a completely new person now than I did all the years when I was forcing myself to wake up early. So I think you know, morning, early risers, morning people, they kind of are deemed the more productive kind of good people in society. And people tend to look down on me and even 
kind of make fun of me for sleeping in more. Is that bad to sleep in a bit more and go to bed a bit later? Or is it just that society kind of doesn't normalize that? No, it's very much a cultural bias. And I always tell my patients, I feel like if you're a night owl in society, it's kind of like being a lefty, you know, a left-handed person in that like the world isn't designed for you culturally, I think, especially in, I mean, I don't know how it is in every country in the world, but, you know, Americans are very much like naps or, you know, lazy people nap and, you know, the 24 seven, you know, the more you work, the harder, um, the harder you, the harder, harder worker you are. And so, yeah, I think it's cultural. There's nothing intrinsically bad about that at all. It's just a normal part of variation. It'd be like saying, if I'm tall, is that bad? It's like, no, you know, it's, there's no really ideal height. I mean, if you have a certain kind of profession where let's say you're a night owl, but, um, in, you know, but you're a surgeon and you have to get up at 4.30 every morning. Well, that's not a great match for you, maybe. But that's not to say you couldn't do it, but you just might have to be more careful and more thoughtful about your sleep-wake cycle. Right. So along the same lines, is there a certain number of hours of sleep we should be getting each night, all of us? Or is that also pretty individualized? It is individualized. And I say that because I think that this idea that we need eight hours can cause some people uh, distress unnecessarily. That being said, if you look at most people, you know, most people, what the most people need, most people do need seven to eight hours in order to, you know, have their optimal cognitive function in terms of attention and you know, not being irritable and things of that nature. So generally speaking, that's true. But I always like to kind of say there are outliers and I, there are some people that they don't need that much. And I think the idea that they, they're not getting it just bothers them, especially if they're using like a sleep tracker or something like that. It can, it can become an issue of its own. Mm. So then you're causing yourself undue stress, which also isn't healthy. So you're stressing about not getting the eight hours. So that could kind of backfire. Exactly. I also feel I just am kind of a unicorn here because I also feel better when I get closer to nine or even 10 hours. Mm -hmm. Is that weird or abnormal or are other people out there like me? (laughs) Not at all. Not at all. That is completely normal. And I think, um, I think it's great that you know that, you know, and even better if you're getting it most of the time. Um, so yeah, there's people who, there are people who need less and there are people who need more than eight. It's, you know, a, probably a bell curve thing. And I could imagine, too, that maybe some people are just so used to getting a certain number of hours or like I was so used to getting up early. I didn't know how good I felt until I was able to wake up later and sleep more. So I guess it could kind of be that idea where people are getting less sleep or maybe not able to figure out their perfect circadian rhythm or their body's needs just because of their job, like you said. So maybe they don't even know that they would feel better with more sleep because they haven't gotten it consistently for years on end or whatever. Yes, that is a hundred percent true. I see that all the time. Uh, That happens not just with sleep deprivation, but with sleep disorders as well. So for example, people who have sleep apnea and then they think they feel fine 
But once you get them treated and they're able to sleep well, they think, wow, I didn't know this was possible because disorder they have kind of crept up on them slowly over time. And so it's hard to notice going from normal to not normal. I remember reading somewhere, and again, I don't know if this study has any bearing, but something that they measured people sleeping, I think, seven or more hours a night, and then people sleeping six, four, or zero hours. And after several weeks, it came out that the people who are sleeping six or four, obviously zero hours, performed way worse than the people who are sleeping seven, eight, or more. Is that like, does sleep have a bearing on our health in terms of if we get six or fewer for a prolonged period of time that could negatively impact our performance and our health? Definitely, for sure. I mean, I know what you're, the study you're referencing and that I think is very well accepted, you know, among the community of experts that there is a long-term health consequence and the risk of virtually almost every disease goes up if you don't get enough sleep. Now, some of that can be correlational, meaning that, you know, if you have a disease that affects your, you know, your nervous system, for example, then that can affect your sleep. And so it coincides with the sleep loss coincides with the disease. So I can't say that every disease is caused by it, but we definitely do see that they're related for sure. Right. What are some of the biggest mistakes you'd see just that your patients or even friends and family are making when it comes to their sleep? So the obvious ones are using your phone and being on social media or on the internet in bed, I would say is the number one thing. And it's not just the blue light, it's the nature of it, that it's stimulating, that it's designed to hold your attention. Um, I'd say the other one is, is, um, sleeping in on the weekends is a sign. Like if you're sleeping later on the weekends than you do during the week, it's a sign you're not getting enough sleep during the week, probably. Um, and it also shifts your circadian rhythm later on the weekends. So you have a little bit of what we call social jet lag. You're going, you know, westward in terms of time zone. And that may not be a big deal on the weekend, but then on Sunday, when you have to travel back East, it can be really detrimental. And I think maybe contribute to what some people call them, the Sunday scaries. Um, I also think that people overuse caffeine and they really underestimate the impact that that has. And I think because we develop a tolerance for it, it's not as noticeable how much it's affecting us, but it does for some people stays in their bloodstream a really long time and they've been doing it for so long. And now they're, you know, in their fifties and they don't metabolize it quite a well. Um, and on that same note, I would say, um, use of marijuana, THC, CBD, um, alcohol in general, just trying to use a substance to sort of force sleep or, help sleep, I think is, is the wrong strategy. Mm, I'm very guilty of that. <laughs> I think probably a lot of us are, but especially the phone in bed. I kind of have this routine where I like to read the New York times before I go to bed and do the little daily crossword puzzle. But deep down, I know that I shouldn't be doing that. And I should probably be reading. Is it bad if you read on something like a Kindle device before going to bed, if it doesn't have blue light? Is that the same stimulation as the phone or is that okay? 
I think it's much better in the sense that, well, on a Kindle, for example, you're not getting the blue light, but also it's not designed to be addictive the way, you know, social media in particular is, uh, Mm -hmm. which is very activating for the brain. And, you know, I don't, to me, I don't think that objectively that's bad, but I would just say like, you know, for you, if you are getting nine hours of sleep a night and you feel great, then I'm, I don't have any problem with that, but yeah. But if someone's telling me I can't get up for work, I'm tired during the day and like I'm sleeping in on the weekends, then I would have to say, then we need to kind of curtail these things that are instead of could be time you're sleeping, you know, or, or someone who has trouble with insomnia. Yeah. We've got to look at that. Yeah, I love that more individual approach. I feel like there's so much out there for everything, you know, nutrition and stress and especially sleep. So anytime someone posts something, I feel like I kind of internalize it. And I think if they say, oh, you should be waking up earlier, then I think, oh my gosh, something's wrong with me. I should be waking up earlier or get off your phone. I think everybody thinks, oh, I have to do that. But I think you just made a really good point that if you feel well rested and you're getting enough sleep for you, then maybe you can kind of relax and not stress out so much about not sleeping well and just embrace the fact that you are sleeping well. Exactly. I would agree with that. Yes. And I, and I mean, I think as if you're, you know, if you're only doing that for a short time, like, you know, 15 minutes or something, then I'm definitely not worried about it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, What about room temperature? Is it better to have a cooler room? So I think the ideal temperature is going to be somewhere between 60 and 70 degrees. So yes, you know, if you live in a warm climate, then you want it to be cooler. Um, Our core body temperature does go down when we're asleep. And there's a whole process where our blood volume and circulation, it kind of shifts from our extremities into our core. And so we release a lot of heat through our skin. So having a cool room does facilitate that. For sure. I mean, yeah, as much as possible, but you know, not too cold. You want it to be comfortable. Right. Do you advise adults coming up with some type of nighttime routine in the way that we do for children? Definitely. It's kind of like a maintenance thing. So like, even if you're a good sleeper and you don't have concerns, it's just a good thing to do. Like it's, it helps maintain that healthy sleep pattern. Um, Because let's say, You've never had a sleep problem, but then something stressful happens to you. And when something stressful happens, all of us have trouble sleeping a little bit. Um, that good routine will help reset you and bring you back to that, you know, normal state you were in before. Mm-hmm. In the morning, do you recommend the same thing? A morning routine, or I've seen that it's best for your sleep at night if you get sunlight first thing. Is that true? Very true. Sunlight in the morning is very important. Uh, If you think about the majority of the time that humans have existed, it has been without electricity. And so the signal that is mainly, you know, we were mainly designed to have uh, a signal to our brain that it's morning through sunlight. And so, you know, up here where I live in Seattle, it's, it's, you know, the day is very short uh, in the wintertime. And it's not like I have a shorter work day because we don't sort of live mm. seasonally anymore. At least I don't. I mean, some people do. I know their jobs are more seasonal, but 
um, then I want to simulate the sun rising. You know, I don't, it's not going to be in sync. I'm not going to have, you know, alignment of my circadian rhythm if this, if it's dark out when I'm getting up in the morning. So I want to get that bright light. So again, it depends on the scenario. You know, if you are in the Northwest in the summer, it's going to be light out at 4.20 a.m. And instead, I want darkness. I want blackout shades until you're the time you get up. So you want to synchronize that light exposure to the time you're getting up in the morning. You want it to simulate what dawn would be. Okay. Similar. So you mentioned the electricity issue. So would part of the nighttime routine you would recommend for people be just turning off all screens at night? Or is it specifically blue light? For example, if you're able to take the blue light off your phone and let's say your TV, can that be okay to not disturb your sleep as much? Or is it just screens in general are kind of something to avoid before bed? I think screens in general for a couple of reasons. One is because of what I mentioned before, which is that it's what you're doing on the screen that's also activating. It's not just the light. It's your engagement and your the engagement of your attention. Right. Okay. And then I've also heard, I just love coming at you with all these things I've seen on the internet and I'm sure all of us have, but Mm -hmm. I've seen something called light pollution maybe in your bedroom of just even an alarm clock or tiny little lights here and there. And people will say it has to be completely pitch black. What are your thoughts about that? I would say, you know, it doesn't have to be, but I mean, if you think about what it was like, for humans before electricity, it was pitch black. And I don't know what, you know, if you've had this experience before and, but many people have, I mean, when you go camping and, you know, it's nighttime, I mean, it's so dark, you can't see your hand in front of your face. You know, that that's how dark it is. You know, I mean, assuming the moon isn't out, let's say, mm-hmm. but when you're really away from the city in a remote area, it's really dark and we need that darkness that darkness lets our body know that it's nighttime and so if you look at i saw a graph once and it showed when the light bulb was invented and then it plotted what the cost of a watt was so the unit of uh electricity and as that cost has gone down it's been directly inversely proportional to how much humans sleep and so the darkness is very important. And so I always mm. tell people, especially if they have trouble sleeping, you know, pitch black in your room. And it's, you'd be amazed. I mean, I think I worked in Alaska for a while, for about five years. And up there, you sort of can't ignore it. I mean, in Seattle, you can just, it it's noticeable, but it doesn't, it's not like a big deal. And in Alaska, you can't ignore it. It, you know, because the light dark is so dramatic. And so um, because it's not just that it's light out there until midnight, it's really, really bright. I mean, it's you, I always told people I felt like I was in Vegas where I was completely disoriented to the time. Like I have no clue what time it is because it's so bright out. Wow. Um, but yeah. So, I mean, to answer your question, the darkness, the darker you can get it, the better, because that's how that's how we were designed as humans to be in that darkness. Yeah. And then you mentioned, obviously, so the, to help with the sleep-wake cycle, getting sunlight first thing if possible. But I know there are these gadgets like a sunlight simulator alarm clock. 
do those tend to help people? Or would you say some of these things are just a waste of money? They definitely do help. Um, they have, to, oh, okay. yeah, and they have to be used at the right time and, you know, in the right way. So there's sometimes of day that they're effective for some people and sometimes not. And that goes back to earlier when we were talking about if you're a lark or an owl. So I'll give you an example. Um, I had a patient recently who had chronic insomnia. And after I uh, evaluated them, I discovered that they were very much a lark. So in other words, this person really had no trouble going to sleep. And in fact, it was difficult for them to stay awake in the evening as long as they wanted, but they wanted to go to bed really early, like eight o'clock and then, but would have trouble sleeping past, you know, 4 a.m., let's say. So for that person, I wouldn't want them to get light in the morning. I'd want them to get it in the evening to try to push their rhythm forward, try to push their sleep cycle later. Um, hmm. But with an owl, someone who's a, who's having trouble getting up in the morning, who wants to sleep in later, then the light in the morning is going to be more important. Hmm. That's really interesting. Uh, similarly, with the gadgets, are blue light blocking glasses something we should be using or are those just all hype? No, they're definitely effective. And um, particularly for people who are working in the evening who have trouble falling asleep or winding down. I mean, what's best is to not be on your screen. But if you do have a job or you have work to do, then absolutely those glasses can be great. And even let's just say you're reading, you're not even on a screen um, and you have LED lights on your bedside table, then you know, the blue blocking glasses are really helpful. And you can get even darker ones too, where they're almost like an amber or a red hue. So they really simulate, you know, I really think of like a candlelight or think about sitting by a campfire. Like that's the kind of dim light you want in the evening. Mm. So do you recommend using candles or those salt lamp things to kind of simulate that effect in the evening? What I use is there are light bulbs you can buy, special light bulbs. Um, I There's one brand I know, Huga Health makes them. I, there's a bunch of different brands. I've seen a couple on Instagram as well. But um, I, like for me, I just have that light bulb in my night side table. And it's, I actually really like it because it gives like this cozy feeling, almost like candlelight or... Um, you know, a campfire vibe to the room, but without the hazard of like falling asleep with fire. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> oh yeah. That's a really good point though. I don't have a bedside lamp right now, but that's an interesting idea just to have one of those lights in your bedside table lamp so that you can just turn it on if you're reading or something before going to bed. Yeah. I, I love that idea. Uh, so you mentioned being cautious with CBD and THC what about the CBD supplements that are promoting sleep? I've tried them myself. Do you think that those can be helpful or do you think we should just not be using some type of supplement? Yeah. So my personal opinion, and I know this will vary a little bit among, I think maybe my colleagues, but there was no evidence that these types of supplements are a treatment for any sleep disorder. And in fact, there is some evidence that they you know, marijuana, for example, over the long term can cause a hypersomnia or a narcolepsy-like syndrome. And they also have effects on behavior like motivation and things like that. So 
I don't recommend them for that reason. I, I do have a lot of patients tell me that CBD helps them or marijuana helps them. And I, I don't, I'm not judgmental of that, but I just also very much have the philosophy that behavioral changes are the best. And so, um, I like to move people away from the knee jerk reaction to, I need a pill for sleeping better. Cause I just think there's a better way that has less, you know, potential uh, side effects. Right. What about two of the more common ones that have been around around for a while, magnesium and melatonin? Magnesium can be very helpful, I think, uh, for people who have leg cramps. Uh, certainly if your magnesium is low, it can be helpful. It doesn't, I don't think there's a lot of evidence it's a treatment for insomnia or a treatment to improve sleep quality. Um, Melatonin is a very, very helpful medication when it is used correctly, but I would say 90% of the time it's not. 90% of the time it's used as an over-the-counter pill I decided to take to try to make myself feel drowsy, and the more the better. If a little bit doesn't work, I'm going to take more. And that's just not how melatonin works. So um, I do Mm. use melatonin in my practice, but... I think people are just, people are misinformed about it. And probably even a lot of doctors are misinformed about it. And I'm sure you prescribe the highest quality and, you know, people are just kind of self-diagnosing, I need melatonin and then buying it on Amazon. So that's not necessarily the way to go. Yeah. I mean, there have been studies showing there's a lot of variability um, in in over-the-counter brands. Um. I'm not in the business of selling supplements at all, and I I don't want to be, but um, there are some brands that are, you know, higher quality. And and then there there are also uh, melatonin-based drugs. There's one uh, that's prescription called Rosarum, and so that's also something that if you see a sleep doctor is available to use as well. It's more potent than melatonin. Mm. You mentioned the social jet lag idea, but I'm wondering in terms of normal jet lag, not that many of us are traveling right now, but when limitations are lifted and we're able to once again explore the world, what is the best way to adapt to different time zones and sleep restfully and avoid jet lag? Well, it really depends where you're going. So it really depends how many you know, time zones away you're going. And so there are websites where you can enter, you know, which time zone you're in and then where you're going and it'll give you some, some tips. So, you know, for example, let's just say you're, you know, we're, we're on the West coast, but let's just say we're going on the East coast, you know, we knew we were going to be going next week. You know, one thing that we could do is that we could get up, wake up 15 minutes earlier, you know, tomorrow and then 15 minutes earlier the next day. And then, you know, then we might only have an hour to change when we get there. So it's not, you know, it's not as brutal in terms of the time change. And you could do something similar. Uh, You might use time blight exposure depending on where you're going. Um, But I'd also say like when you're traveling, uh, staying really well hydrated um, is important too. Because I think we all get really dehydrated when we fly too. So Mm. And you mentioned how power naps or just naps in general are kind of demonized in our society. So would you say that napping can be an okay habit to get into, or is it best not to nap because that could interfere with your nighttime sleep? Yeah, napping is 
actually a very normal part of physiology. If you look at human alertness across the 24 hour day, there are fluctuations and we have a dip in our alertness level in the afternoon. Um, it's not because we ate lunch. It's just because the alerting signal from our brain is not as bright at that time. And so, you know, if you, if you've had the experience where you've traveled to certain countries and they have siesta or all the shops closed down, like that's a very physiologic thing to do. So they are not bad in any way. And, and actually the older we get, the more predisposed we are to doing, you know, to having that tendency to nap. Um, but I would say if you are a person who struggles with an insomnia, if you are a person who has trouble sleeping at night, if you are a person that takes a nap and you can't stop at, you know, 40 minutes, you, it ends up in three hours and then you can't fall asleep at night, then yeah, naps are not for you, you know? So you kind of have to decide based on like what your cost benefit, you know, the cost benefit ratio is. Mm-hmm. What role does exercise play when it comes to getting great sleep? Exercise is very important. Exercise makes our brain generate a need for deep sleep. And so exercise is, you know, hands down something that you want to do. I mean, caffeine inhibits a neurotransmitter called adenosine. Adenosine is the neurotransmitter that's primarily responsible for generating deep sleep. That's why it's a st- stimulating, you know, substance and exercise helps generate adenosine. So it helps to generate that deep sleep. Hmm. Would that be more hardcore exercise or is even just taking, let's say, a 15 to 30 minute walk enough? Yeah, I think any exercise would count. You know, the more, oh, yeah, the more you exercise, the more. I mean, I was just listening to a podcast with Michael Phelps and, you know, you know, he was saying something like when he was training that he would sleep, you know, 10 hours plus or something like that. So if you're exercising, you know, training like an, an Olympian, then yeah, it's going to really make your need for sleep go up. Wow. And then what about nutrition? What role does that play? How can we eat better to sleep better? This is a fascinating area that I wish I knew more about. Um, but here's where I think is is the most interesting thing about nutrition. If you think about what we were talking about earlier, where there was no electricity, right? And we're living on the land and we're hunters and gatherers. We also ate seasonally, right? The food we ate, you know, has different um, nutritional values at different times of year. And I was reading recently, you know, about there's this big trend about, you know, foods with melatonin. So people are like eating cherries now because they have melatonin and things like that. But it's, Interesting, I think there's a whole science behind, you know, eating seasonally makes sense because at some times of the year, there's going to be more melatonin in the food and things of that nature. So for me, I I think I'm not a great expert in terms of like sleep and nutrition, but what I can say is like just eating healthy, you know, eating fruits and vegetables, you know, not eating in bed, not eating at night. Those are sort of the things that I focus on. But I do think it's a very interesting topic. And I wish I wish I could say more about it. But those are some of the things that I'm wanting to learn more about eating seasonally. Yeah, I haven't heard that. That's really interesting, especially the whole cherries thing. I could see where social media would have a real heyday with that. Of <laughs> That's a great headline, you know, cherries have melatonin. So then everybody's just buying tons of cherries. 
Uh, some people are doing that. And I have had some clients that, um, that are doing that and they've studied it. And um, I don't think they saw much of a difference, but people, you know, the, the psychological aspect makes a difference too in how people feel. Right. I know a lot of people on social media, speaking of social media, claim to be sleep experts. What are some of the big myths and misconceptions you just see circulating the internet? Like a myth you wish would just die at this point when it comes to sleep? I mean, I my number one pet peeve is when I see posting sleep hygiene rules mm. as a way for people to... Number one, like that's not information anymore. Like everyone's already heard that. And number two... In clinical trials, sleep hygiene by itself has never cured it, you know, does not cure any sleep disorder. You know, it, it's not a treatment for a sleep disorder. It's something important, but it's not, you know, I think even primary doctors will tell their patients or post on Instagram, like, here's what you need to get a good night of sleep. And it's just so much more complicated than that. So that I think that's my number one pet peeve. Yeah, I love all of your kind of nuanced thoughts and just your the individualized approach you take. And I think it's just good for us to all hear that and take a deep breath and know that we can kind of try things and see how we sleep. And it's just really a personal kind of basis for, like you were saying, in terms of how long you sleep and how many uh, or what time you go to bed or what time you wake up. Um, I know that's just, that's been good for me to hear. Uh, the final question I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? I think the health investment is, it's knowing, you know, that this is a marathon, not a sprint. And it's basically, you know, playing the long game. So like knowing what I do today is going to affect me in 10 years from now. And like, for me, I have a two-year-old. And so I want to be there when she, you know, graduates from college and gets married. And that's, to me, that's what it is. It's wanting to just, you know, make that investment for the future. I love that. Where can listeners follow and find you? I am on Instagram. I'm Sleep Doctor Mare, and then I'm also uh, on my clinical practice is located in Washington, and I also uh, see clients via virtual visits in California and Alaska. My practice, the name of my practice is Sound Sleep Guru, and I have a website www.soundsleepguru.com, and you can schedule or do an informational call with me there. Awesome. I will link up both of those, uh, your website and your social media in the show notes. And I just thank you so, so much for being here and kind of jumping all around with me and answering all my questions about sleep. And I learned a ton and I know my listeners will as well. Thank you for having me. I love spreading the word. So. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the health investment podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, 
lifestyle and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.